Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with Madeline Miller about her latest book, Circe, the follow-up to Miller's Orange Prize-winning The Song of Achilles. How's it going today? It's going wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. I'm glad to talk about this book, which is uh, a number one New York Times bestseller right now, even though it's already been out, only been out for a little while, which is great. Uh, how are you feeling about it? Uh, absolutely thrilled. I, I'm, you know, these stories have been part of my psyche since I was a child. And so it's just incredibly rewarding to hear that they are resonating with others, too. Oh, of course. Um, now, Cersei is a minor character in Homer's classic, The Odyssey. And I'm wondering when you first encountered, encountered the character itself and what kind of effect you had then. Sure. So I first encountered Cersei, my first memory of encountering her anyway, um, was when I was reading Homer's Odyssey for the very first time in translation. I was 13 years old. We were all reading it in our English class. And um, I had heard about the character before because I loved Greek myths, but I hadn't actually read the scene. And I was really excited because, you know, a sorceress who turns men to pigs, um, that's pretty exciting. And there, there are so few female characters like that in the ancient mythology. Oftentimes they're just ciphers. It's, you know, so-and-so's mother, so-and-so's daughter or wife, and that's kind of all that the characters get. And so I was really looking forward to, you know, a character who seemed like she could actually stand up to Odysseus. Um, and then they, they, you know, land on the island and he goes to see, um, sorry, hang on just one second. Oh, <laughs> I, I really apologize. Okay. No, no, honey. No, no. I'm sorry. I'll come see you later, baby. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the babysitter didn't know I was on, a, uh, on an interview. I'm so sorry. I'm on an interview. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. Oh, okay, no worries. Um, I hadn't warned her. She doesn't usually know where to find me. Uh, anyway, let me take that again. Go ahead. Go ahead. You just start that from the beginning. Thank goodness. Thank goodness this is not alive. Exactly. Um, uh, so, uh, so Odysseus lands on her island, and um, he sends some of his men to go, you know, see if anyone is inhabiting the island. And they go in, and this beautiful goddess welcomes them into her house. And she's very unusual. They're tame lions and wolves lolling around. Um, and she offers them food and wine, which, unbeknownst to them, is drugged. And then as soon as they consume it, she uses a magical spell um, and turns them into pigs. And so Odysseus, of course, has to come rescue them. And he is stopped on the way by Hermes, who gives him some, you know, who is the god of tricksters and also an ancestor of Odysseus's. Uh, and so he gives him some herbs that will make him immune. And Odysseus heads into Circe's house and, you know, she gives him the drugged wine, tries to turn him into a pig. It doesn't work. Um, and then he pulls out his sword and threatens her. And she immediately drops to her knees and, you know, begs for mercy. Um, and it was just such a disappointment to yeah. see that immediate containment of the female power um, that she has to, you know, literally be put in her place on her knees and everything has to, you know, be subjugated to the hero's story. And I think I just longed for more. Um, I just really wanted more, even as a as a 13-year-old. Um, and I wanted, you know, to keep the camera on her a little bit longer as opposed to just going back to Odysseus's story. 
Yeah, no, I, I get that. that. That's so interesting to kind of um, use that as a framework to kind of establish. And it, it's really timely in a lot of ways. And I know you've been speaking about this in your interviews, uh, both with uh, kind of um, the year of women, the hashtag Me, Me Too movement, and a lot of frameworks of uh, reanalyzing historical events and also our our myths and, and our fables and our fairy tales through, through a very different lens point. Um, well, Exactly. And, you know, all these epics and, and wonderful pieces of ancient literature that I've loved my whole life, with, you know, the exception of Sappho, they're all written by men, and usually they're starring men as well. And so I really wanted this to be, you know, a woman's epic story. And it's, it's really cool. And you, she's such an interesting character to kind of play in because she's... She's kind of noticing all this history that we've recognized from these myths, and she's going through that in her head. And I love the way in this book that you add dimension and psychology to these characters, like as you said, that are traditionally ciphers, are are, are examples of tropes. Um, like like for Jason, for example, as a man who can't see himself outside his own myth, almost like a Simone Boulevard character, right? And that, that really kind of hones in. <laughs> right, right. And I, you know, there's so many characters... Um, not just, you know, the main characters, but some of the minor female characters and male characters that it was so fun to flesh out because oftentimes, even, you know, for the men, we get the heroic deeds, but we don't necessarily get the internal psychology. Um, so it was fun to dig into, for example, Daedalus, the master craftsman um, who makes the labyrinth that contains the monster, the Minotaur, or Speaking of the Minotaur myth, um, Circe's sister, who is a character that I just think has been criminally underwritten about, uh, she is the mother of the Minotaur. And, you know, what an intense personality it seemed to me you would have to be in order to be the mother of the Minotaur. Um, and so that was a character that I loved fleshing out. She's a witch in the mythology like Circe. Um, and, you know, just kind of exploring how you how she comes to be the mother of the Minotaur and Queen of Crete and her relationship to her witchcraft and how is it different from Circe's. Yeah. When kind of like looking into the, the inner psychology and working on that for the book, uh, specifically with Circe, uh, was there an important facet of like the myth or thing that you really wanted to analyze and got excited about and kind of to dig in more to? Um, I think I think all of it yeah. uh, there. I mean, I think for me as a writer, if I am not passionate about about the myth or about the, the story, I just can't write it. <laughs> um, and I certainly would never ask my readers to read something that I wasn't totally invested in. Uh, I think I was really interested in. Um, for one thing, answering that question of why is Cersei turning men to pigs? It's kind of the central mystery about her character in the um, in the Odyssey. And Homer never tells us. And amazingly, Odysseus, who's supposed to be this brilliant and very curious man, never asks her. And so I wanted there to be kind of a, a story behind that. And so so that was that was important, kind of digging into how how that happened. But I also loved the fact that she is born this totally minor goddess. Um, the ancient Greek gods were very hierarchical. So, you know, Zeus and Helios and Hera and Athena at the top, they had a lot of power. But by the time you got all the way to the bottom, to the nymphs, which is what Circe is, um, they basically had no power at all. They're in the midst, they're pawns or prey. They're totally manipulated by greater gods, and they have no control over their destinies. Very often they're assaulted or forced into marriages that they don't want. Um, 
And so Circe is born that, and yet she manages to become, by the time we see her in the Odyssey, this figure that, you know, Hermes has to come down and help Odysseus to handle, that she's she's even the greatest god. The Olympian gods are a little, you know, wary of her. And so, you know, that's very interesting about sort of what you're born versus what you make yourself. Um, and she ends up having that power through witchcraft. She can't get it through regular channels, so she makes her own power. And she is, in fact, the first witch in Western literature. So that was also a really fascinating piece. Interesting. Kind of the origin story of all things that come after that. Um, yeah. When did you become interested in the classics? Was it that first reading of the Odyssey when you were 13? Uh, it actually went back before that. My mother used to read um, pieces of the Iliad and the Odyssey to me as bedtime stories, uh, which now she thinks makes her sound really inappropriate. But um, <laughs> I loved them. And just, you know, I have a memory of her reading the first line of the Iliad, which is, sing goddess of the destructive rage of Achilles. Um, and I was just completely hooked. I felt like these stories were so different from anything else I had been reading. I mean, look, I also love Goodnight Moon and the Runaway Bunny, but um, <laughs> this, there was something about this that felt incredibly passionate and intense, and even though there were monsters and gods, incredibly real to me. Um, so I continued to study it. You know, I had this wonderful English class where we read the Odyssey. And then when I got to high school, I had an amazing Latin teacher who offered to teach me Homeric Greek. And um, being able to read the Iliad and the Odyssey in the original was just mind-blowing for me. So at that point, I was right into college, becoming a, a classics major, and then into my master's. I, I sort of couldn't get enough. That's so interesting. I, a lot of people, you know, who can't read in the Homeric Greek, can you describe that feeling of being able to go through and really understand all these nuances to the text that you just, even in the best of translations, you don't get a lot of that? Well, it's just there's so many. That's right. And, you know, the, the good news about Homer is that he goes pretty well into English um, as, you know, translations go. I think you can get a lot of Homer's force. Um, and poetry and story uh, into the into the English, partially, I think, because Homer was originally oral poetry. It came out of oral tradition, and these were things delivered by bards to a listening audience. And something about that, I think, work, works really well with English. Um, but the, the things that you kind of can't get are just the wonderful Homeric sound effects, yeah. the feel and forward motion of the poetry. Um, and just just this extra sense of vividness and excitement and suspense that to me it you know instead of kind of feeling like I'm looking at it through a little bit of a window pane it's like it's happening right in front of my face that's sort of how I always think of it. Yeah, no, I get that. You know, uh, the classics these 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 myths are something that we keep coming back to and keep on finding an invigorating importance to to our modern day and i'm wondering if there's a particular aspect of of any certain myth a favorite myth or, or character that you have that you continually come back to um well there's so there's so many that are that are gripping but i i do think that the iliad um and the odyssey but maybe even the iliad in particular is something that i come back to um it is so much about war and leaders and people who um it focuses on the leaders, Achilles and Agamemnon, the leaders of the Greek army. But you can kind of see at the margins all the people who suffer and die because of 
the choices of the leaders. And I think that it just shows us that, you know, there has been collateral damage for time out of mind, and it sort of reminds us of the brutality of war. Um, lots of times people talk about Homer as being, you know, kind of celebrating war and celebrating war glory and honor, but I, th I think it's basically impossible to come out of um, the Iliad without feeling sobered about the violence and the waste of that particular war. There's kind of seen, oftentimes there are these long lists where it's, you know, and then so-and-so died, and then so-and-so died, and then so-and-so died. But each one of those deaths is kind of given a, a particular um, spin. So, you know, then his brain blew out the back of his head, and then they stabbed him through his liver. And then, and it's, each death is this visceral explosion of a body. Um, and it's so powerful and overwhelming that I think it, it, it is just, it, it reminds us of, you know, how we can get into these situations and, and hopefully we can try and learn from, from some of those mistakes. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because a lot of people when they think of myths are, are, are certain more um, uh, Homeric poems, they think of like the glorifying aspect, the heroics, mm. but if that's mm. already, those things, those visceral reactions, those real qualities of what war actually means or what politics actually mean are, are in there as well. And it's really interesting yeah. to see that, that it's there. That's not something that people are writing into later, that that's already there. It's been there for 2,000 years or, or 3,000 years, actually. Exactly. And, you know, Agamemnon is constantly making choices that cause terrible pain to the people he's leading, totally for his own pride and, you know, narcissism. And it's just, it, it's amazing to see that. Um, and, you know, I think Homer is certainly critiquing it on some level when you get to Virgil's Aeneid. He's openly critiquing it um, purposefully. And so it's, yeah, it's it's all in there. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. I think I really love, um, in particular, the story of Achilles, where when he's a young man, so the story goes, Achilles is given this choice to die young and be famous forever or to live a long and happy life and no one will ever remember his name. And he chooses as a teenager, which I think is a particularly terrible time to have to make this choice. <laughs> he chooses to die young and, and be famous forever. And the Iliad is kind of the story of him living with that, that he has sacrificed everything for his reputation. And therefore, when his reputation is threatened, he just has to hit the nuclear button. And then, you know, it kind of spirals from there. But what's amazing about his story is that we actually check back in with him in the Odyssey. And he's dead now, having died young. And Odysseus sees his ghost. And Odysseus talks to him and he says, you know, Achilles, you have everything you wanted. You're the most famous Greek who's ever lived. You're the mightiest warrior of our people. You're king of the dead. You know, it must, it must feel good. You have everything you wanted. And there's this incredible reversal that happens where Achilles says, you know, no, don't say that to me. I made the wrong choice. It's better to be alive and to be nothing than to be king of the dead. And it's just amazing. It's, you know, this very brief moment in the Odyssey, but it kind of unmakes the entire Iliad. And so I, I love that there are so many layers to these ancient stories and so many insights into human nature and how we choose to live our lives. Yeah. Um, you are you were more working in the academy than, than, than writing initially. Um, yes. What was that transition like for you to becoming like a writer and particularly writing fiction? Um, so I had always been writing since I was a child. It was something I had pursued all throughout high school and college. 
but I had never considered putting the two things together. They were on completely separate <laughs> parallel <laughs> tracks. And um, so I wasn't, you know, becoming a writer out of nowhere. I did have this writing background, but what changed for me was actually um, theater. And I was asked to co-direct a production of Troilus and Cressida, which is Shakespeare's Iliad play. Um, and it is brilliant and funny and nasty and brutal. And it was so exciting for me to work with the characters from a storytelling perspective where I was sort of giving input into, you know, Achilles, this is your motivation in this scene. And, you know, Agamemnon, here's how we're going to costume you. Um, Odysseus, here's how I want you to enter. That when it ended, it was it was like I was addicted. I, I didn't want to end. And I, I had been planning um, to write my thesis on interpretations of the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, who are sometimes interpreted as lovers and sometimes as the closest of companions mm. kind of throughout literature and throughout history. And I had this revelation that it was not my thesis. It was a novel. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I wanted to write it as a novel. Um, and, and so then it sort of Patroclus' story started to pour out on the page. Um, and it, it was very, it was a very weird experience at first because I felt a little bit like I was doing something bad. Uh, I didn't tell any of my classics peers that I was doing it. I did not tell any of my professors. I kept it totally secret. <laughs> I was worried they were going to kick me out of the classics club if they knew what I was doing. Um, and, you know, 10 years later when it was finally finished, I, I got my first copy of the Song of Achilles and I put it in an envelope and sent it off, you know, to each one of my mentors and just sweated it out for two weeks, totally worried that they were going to hate me and hate the book and, um, as it turned out, actually, they were incredibly lovely about it and really, really supportive. And it's been really wonderful to see that I think, you know, classicists really get it that these stories live because they're retold and that there is no such thing as a definitive myth. Yeah. Um, you know, that there's Homer's version and Virgil's version and Ovid's version. And then there's James Joyce and there's Margaret Atwood. And, you know, you can you can keep telling these stories without um, without breaking them. And, and certainly, you know, I can't do anything to Homer. He's going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so it, it, it was incredibly gratifying, but for 10 years, it was very scary. <laughs> I get that. I get that. that. That's super interesting. And I'm glad that there was a lot of support there for that too. Um, you know, classics has had, or the classic department or the people associated with it has had um, a reputation for being, in the ivory tower and mainly kind of taken over by men. But you see writers, as you mentioned, and, and scholars really inserting themselves in a lot of really interesting and interdisciplinary ways and, and things that you would not have expected. Um, how's has your experience like working within the classics and with people working with them now? And how do you think it's changed since, you know, those ivory tower, like male dominated days? Mm. Um, I, I think it is definitely uh, heading in a in a great direction, as you say. I think there is a lot of, of ivory tower. There is a lot of sort of excluding women and the perspectives of women, but not just that. Um, also, you know, the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus and sort of interpreting that as with them being lovers. I think that version, uh, which you know goes back to Plato, was kind of whitewashed out. Um, so there, there was a lot of stuff that was being excluded, um, and it was kind of just one voice that was that was telling all this stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I can remember 
I had an incredibly wonderful experience, and my two closest mentors were, were both men, and they could not have been more supportive of me. Um, I did have one experience where um, I will not name any names or even any schools for where I was because I studied at a couple different grad programs. Uh, but I did have a, a Greek history professor who was definitely from that old guard. Um, and on the first day of Greek history, he said, I don't want to hear any questions about women and slaves because this is a course about history. And, you know, I think that that kind of, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was shocking to me at the time. And I think to a lot of people in the, but, you know, um, time has marched on. And I think that you would never hear that nowadays yeah. um, at all. And I think perspectives have, have changed and, and that's wonderful. Um, I think in, in the old days, you know, and this is going back to kind of 1900s and, and earlier, the women who did study classics were often encouraged away from Homer and the big war epics, because those are kind of the marquee texts of the ancient world. And so women were often encouraged towards, you know, if they did study classics, the so-called softer parts of it, you know, mm -hmm. love poetry, art history, um, things like that, that were seen as kind of, okay, the women can have that, that's not as important. And so therefore, you know, they, they can study that. But now I think, you know, so many of the major, major scholars for, you know, these major works are women. Um, Emily Wilson, for instance, just came out with this tremendous and brilliant translation of the Odyssey that I think should be the new gold standard for the Odyssey. Um, and she she's a, a Penn professor and just such a, a brilliant scholar. So, you know, I think there has been a revolution. And, and to Classics credit, I think that, you know, so many people have, have absolutely embraced that. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And that, that's refreshing to hear. And, you know, I'm glad because that makes these works more complex, as we were talking about earlier in the interview, there, there are more things to focus on. There's more delving into the psychology that you can really get into, um, more debates exactly. to have as well. Um, yes. Well, I, I would love to hear a, a short segment from, from your book, Circe, if you wouldn't mind reading that for us. Sure. Um, so Circe is the daughter of the sun god Helios. And as I mentioned, she's the first witch in Western literature. Um, she lives on her magical island of Iaia. And... This section comes from towards the middle of the novel after she has already started turning men to pigs. Um, and the he in the passage is the hero, Odysseus. He asked me once, why pigs? We were seated before my hearth in our usual chairs. He liked the one draped in cowhide with silver inlaid in its carvings. Sometimes he would rub the scrolling absently beneath his thumb. Why not? I said. He gave me a bare smile. I mean it. I would like to know. I knew he meant it. He was not a pious man, but the seeking out of things hidden, this was his highest worship. There were answers in me. I felt them very deep as last year's bulbs growing fat. Their roots tangled with those moments I had spent against the wall when my lions were gone and my spell shut up inside me. After I changed a crew, I would watch them scrabbling and crying in the sky, falling over each other, stupid with their horror. They hated it all, their newly voluptuous flesh, their delicate split trotters, their swollen bellies dragging in the earth's muck. It was a humiliation, a debasement. They were sick with longing for their hands, those appendages men used to mitigate the world. Come, I would say to them, it's not that bad. You should appreciate a pig's advantages. Mud slick and swift, they are hard to catch. 
Low to the ground, they cannot easily be knocked over. They are not like dogs. They do not need your love. They can thrive anywhere, on anything, scraps and trash. They look witless and dull, which lulls their enemies, but they are clever. They will remember your face. They never listened. The truth is, men make terrible pigs. Wow, thank you. That, that, was, that was great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure. Well, when you're talking about Circe, you sort of have to pick the pig section. Yeah. <laughs> At least one of them. <laughs> as, as we mentioned before, that, that question of why pigs, I, I love the answer you've come up with there. That, that's great. Um, well, to kind of wrap us up, Madeline, um, would you mind telling us what you're reading right now and also uh, if you're working on anything? Sure. Um, I, have a, I have a bunch of stuff kind of um, coming up uh this summer, I'm going to be, um, let's see, what am I reading? I, I really want to read um, the new David Sedaris book, Calypso, which looks absolutely wonderful. Um, I love Lily King. Um, I loved her book, Father of the Rain and Euphoria. I haven't, but I haven't read her first novel, which now I'm blanking on the name, but I'm going to read that. Um, I am, uh, let's see. What else am I reading right now? Um, I often have kind of a couple of things that I'm rereading. I'm actually in the middle of a reread of The Once and Future King. Um, I was inspired to reread it after reading H's for Hawk, which was one of my favorite nonfiction books I think I've ever read. Oh, wow. um, and in it, uh, Helen McDonald talks a lot about um, T.H. White, who himself wrote a book on falconry and, and hawking called uh, The Goshawk. And apparently he was a terrible uh, you know, falcon master and, and ended up, you know, being pretty terrible to his falcon kind of inadvertently out of ignorance. Um, but she ended up talking a lot about his psychology and how that appears in Once and Future King. So I had to go back and, and reread it. Um, and it is, it is really wonderful. I, I read it as a young person and I'm so glad I'm rereading it now because I think that there's so much more in it that uh, it's just it's like the ancient texts. I think there's a lot there um, to read. I uh, I love James Baldwin, so I often reread some of his work. Um, I really want to see um, the movie I Am Not Your Negro, yeah. uh, which is supposed to be just tremendous. And apparently there's a book version of it that's kind of a transcript, but I, I've heard that the movie is really powerful. So I'd like to start with that, and then I'll probably also read the book. I can highly recommend um, it, actually. It's very good. Both of them are. Oh, good. Okay, that's wonderful to hear. That's I, I mean... James Baldwin, I think, is one of our great poet prophets of America. I think he he just is such an, a searing and passionate intellect and voice. So I think I'm ashamed that I haven't seen it already <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's just so, you know, he is so tremendous and I have such admiration for his work. Um, in terms of what I'm working on, uh, I'm looking at two projects right now that are kind of germinating. I'm still a little bit on book tour, and I'm not one of those writers who can do a good job of writing while I'm on book tour. But uh, I'm thinking about Virgil's Aeneid, which is the other great ancient love of my life. Mm. And there are lots of characters there. Um, one of the things that is so fascinating to me about the Aeneid is that Virgil was born into a republic, and when he died, um, Rome was an empire. So he lived through the transition from republic to you know, emperor yeah. to dictator. And you can see that. And there are all these moments in the Aeneid where he's kind of, you know, 
putting in these little seeds of, of resistance, um, even though he literally had the emperor, you know, breathing over his shoulder and wanting to see what he was writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, that's a very powerful text to me for, for that reason, as kind of this political resistance. Um, I also love Shakespeare. I mentioned I was a, a theater director. After that first production of Troilus and Cressida, I ended up directing many, many more Shakespeare plays and falling completely in love with theater and with Shakespeare. And so The Tempest has been kind of germinating in the background for a long time in terms of a, a book loosely inspired by The Tempest. So um, The Tempest or The Aeneid, I think. Okay, that's exciting. Both both very solid choices. Is The Tempest your favorite <laughs> play by Shakespeare? No, it is not. Um, if I were going to choose a, a favorite play, I think I would say... Uh, King Lear, probably. I mean, well, okay, I'd say King Lear and Twelfth Night and Henry the Fourth, Part One. So that's a, you know, tragedy, yes. <laughs> comedy, history. That's, that's good. I like it. I like it. Um, well, I, I'd actually, if you have a little bit of time, I'd love to ask you a couple more follow-up questions. Sure. Um, I was really just thinking about this and thinking about just love of myth. I, I'm wondering if you could pick one book, uh, TV series, movie, pop culture zeitgeist thing that is from the current day uh which one would you hope would be two thousand years from now their type of homeric text oh wow what a wonderful question um i feel like i need to think about this for a really long time <laughs> uh i would love to see uh wolf hall and bring up the bodies <laughs> survive two thousand years i think hillary mantel has this unbelievable um, clarity and brilliance of prose. And I love that her work is so steeped in both Shakespeare and the classics. I actually think her Cromwell is a very um, Odysseus figure in, in many ways. Uh, you know, he's kind of the, the classic uh, trickster, but he has, you know, he has sympathy, but he also can be brutally ruthless and pragmatic, pragmatic when he wants to be um, very much like Odysseus. So uh, that would be that would be one example, but I, I maybe James Baldwin. Yeah, <laughs> um, James Baldwin certainly reveals all the all the faults and and fault lines in our society. But I, I think he he speaks to universal you know the universal human spirit, and he has some of the greatest empathy I think of any writer that I know. So may, I might have to have James maybe both of them. Yeah. In, a, in my fantastical world, <laughs> those two. Hey, we'll, we'll take it. That, 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 I think that's a solid answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, Madeline, this has been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.